We are all very familiar with landmarks. Just think about uh, landmarks here in the region in which we live. There is the ocean. You know, it's that big blue wet thing, right, out west of us here. There's the bay. Um, if you are in San Francisco, there's Coit Tower. There's Sutra Tower. There's the Golden Gate Bridge. If you're here in the East Bay, there's Cal State University East Bay. If you're over in the Tri-Valley area, you have Mount Diablo that kind of is a, a reference point. These are all landmarks that kind of, as you're traveling, you look up and see, have I passed this place yet? How close am I? Am I getting close to home? Am I really, really lost? And we use these things to kind of help us and guide us to where we want to go. In John chapter 12, we have a landmark described that is a reference point for all eternity. It is a reference point of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And everything, in a sense, adjusts and has that in certain perspective. Now, you may not necessarily note that, but what rises up in the Gospel of John, if you think about it in a topographical way, if you could read the Gospel of John in a topographical way, you would find along in the stories the cross popping up in passages all over the place because it is that reference point that helps us understand how we are to live life, how we are to think about Christ, how we are to absorb the purposes of the Godhead. And in John chapter 12, verse 32, we're told here, and I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is saying is going to take place. He's going to be lifted up. And if you remember, there's a double meaning going on in that statement. And that double meaning really reflects two things, all right? First of all, it's crucifixion at the hands of unbelieving man, where Jesus will be lifted up to die. Not only is it crucifixion, though, it is also exaltation according to the will of the Father, where Jesus will be lifted up and honored or exalted by that cross. So you have man crucifying Jesus, lifting him up. You have God, the Father, lifting Jesus up on that cross to be honored, to be exalted among men. And so here we have this, this picture hear this, of divine sovereignty, what God is doing in Jesus and in the affairs of man, and also what man is doing. So we have human responsibility also working hand in hand together. The Jews had been plotting to arrest and put Jesus to death. It's because of their actions, their sinful responses, their manipulation, their unbelief that Jesus is sent as an innocent man to suffer an agonizing death through crucifixion. But it was also God's divine will for Jesus to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to be the sacrifice once for all. So you have human responsibility driving Jesus to a cross. You have divine purposes driving Jesus to a cross. And they're not fighting with each other, they are working with each other. They both go hand in hand. So we must recognize that the Jews were totally responsible for Jesus' death. But we also must recognize that the Father was totally powerful in Jesus' death. Both are true. And divine sovereignty and human responsibility in this situation, we're not at odds with each other, but we're working hand in hand to bring about the death and the crucifixion of the Messiah. And so this divine sovereignty and human responsibility idea, dilemma, however you want to kind of struggle with that, kind of liken it to two boxers in a boxing ring. They, they both have their purposes. They're both trying to be aggressive, but neither one outpowers the other. Neither one knocks the other one down. Because what God does, He does through men who are acting according to what they desire to do. Now let me explain it a little bit further. God doesn't force His will on unwilling people. Judas will betray Jesus because it was what he wanted to do. 
We'll find that out in the next passage. Judas was not functioning as a puppet in the hands of a sovereign God, as if he was just kind of going through life. And it's like when it came to this time of betrayal, something came over him and and it was God just kind of using him as a tool. No, Judas in his very heart desired to betray Jesus. That's why he did it. But at the same time, the sovereign hand of God was at work. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Not only Judas, though, Pilate will hand over Jesus and seek to wash his hands of the responsibility. Not because he is a robot, but because he is acting according to his own will. And behind each of these men is the hand of a sovereign God doing what he has set out to do, and his purposes will be accomplished. But he doesn't just use men as if they're not thinking or they're fighting against him. No, he uses mankind who is doing exactly what they desire to accomplish. And they set out to do it, but God is also at work in that. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Both of these are working hand in hand. We see this as we begin our time here looking at John chapter 12. And we're setting the stage for our text here. Not only do we recognize landmarks, but we also recognize signs. We are familiar with signs. And if you've been with us as we've been going through John's gospel, uh, we have been looking at a number of signs. The word sign or signs is used like 17 times in the gospel of John. Um, The 16th time is used here in John chapter 12. We don't hear about it again until chapter 20 when we're told there the theme of the book. Jesus did many other signs, all right? That's the last time we hear about it. And the first half of the book really is often considered to be the book of signs. Signs being miracles or ways in which Jesus is demonstrating through some miracle, through some kind of unusual circumstance, that he is Christ and he is demonstrating his power through these signs. So so in order to get to a landmark, we need signs. Let's think about it that way. In order to get to Coit Tower, you have to have a sign that is telling you, get on this freeway, go over here, cross the bridge, turn right, find a parking spot if you can, and you have the money, and then you'll finally get to that location, right? We use signs to get to where we need to go. Signs are necessary to take us to those landmarks. They keep us confident, they warn us of difficult decisions along the journey, and they caution us not to fall asleep on the journey. I mean, how many of you have ever gone to San Francisco and you found yourself maybe in the carpool lane when you really had a carpool, or the opposite, and you're in the wrong lane, if you'd just been paying attention, watching the signs, you would have been okay, or you missed that turn off because you were focusing on, you know, maybe some of the cranes over there, you know, in the docks, and, and you, you didn't turn off when you were supposed to, and now the whole direction is upside down, and you need signs to get you back to where you need to be so you can get to where you want to go. Signs are there for a reason, to comfort us, to warn us, to caution us, But signs, hear this, point to places of interest and are not intended to be the focus of any lengthy attention. I mean, you don't see people pulling off their freeway and say, oh, wow, there's a sign for San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge. Wow, let's let's stop here and let's look at the sign. It's green. Have you seen green like that before? No, I've never seen it like that before. And they use capital letters rather than lowercase. And wow, it's amazing. Let's take a picture of it. Now, the purpose of that sign is what? To help you get to the destination. So, I remember one time when I was in Russia. Again, this is cultural. I remember I was in Russia and we were going into a town or a village and it had the sign of the village. You're entering this village. But I was a little bit humored as you left the village there was also a sign when you entered the village there was a nice white sign with the name of the village whatever it might be when you were leaving same sign they had a red slash through it so it's kind of like okay hey listen once you cross this sign, you're out of our territory all right if you felt welcome when you're coming in this one is saying listen you're out you're on your own you're stuck all right it's just telling you here's the limits of this territory but we don't typically do that here in our country it's kind of like when you, when you arrive, you get the sign. When you leave, and you just, oh, have we left yet? I don't know. 
Now, signs point you to the area of interest. They assure you that you're headed in the right direction and eventually get you to your destination. A number of years ago, my family and I went to Yosemite. And we actually went up to a place called Pine Mountain Lake, and we were spending some time there, and we continued down 120. And we went down to the entrance gate there on 120 to Yosemite. And we stopped there, because we actually had to use the restroom, and that's probably the only place you could go. But when we stopped there, there was this sign that says, Welcome to Yosemite. And we all got out of the cars, went to the restroom, and said, Hey, what a great idea. Let's go get our picture taken in front of this sign. A sign that's telling everyone that we have been to Yosemite. So we get out, and we all stand around and have our picture taken. Now, we're not the only ones doing it. Almost everyone that's stopping is doing the same thing. And we take the picture of us there at this sign at the entrance of Yosemite. But friends, that is not the same thing as actually going to Yosemite. It was a nice drive up to that point. Lots of trees, you know, a few moors, some unusual scenery, that kind of stuff. But the marvelous sights were in the park. And we could have spent all day around that sign. We could have put out a picnic blanket and had you know, tea and, and, and sandwiches and, and chips and said, isn't this great? We're at Yosemite. We're around this sign and then gone home. And we'd have a picture to prove that we were there. But we never really were there because all we were doing was looking at the sign. Now friends, I, I'm, I'm belaboring a point here for a reason. And the reason is that oftentimes we can be distracted by the sign rather than the purpose of that sign. And that's what we have here in John's gospel. It wouldn't make sense for us to go to Yosemite and spend all day at the sign. And when we get to John's gospel, we have lots and lots of signs. But don't get me wrong, signs are good. They're not bad things. They're magnificent pictures of, and pointers to Jesus in John's gospel, but that is all they are. They are there to take us to Christ so that we can understand him more fully and worship him for who he truly is. But when it comes to it, a sign is insufficient. A sign doesn't bring salvation. A sign doesn't remove your sin. A sign doesn't grow you in your faith. It doesn't take your, your place on the cross. It is not the sacrificial lamb. A sign is not the focus, but the means of focusing. So with all that, we jump now to John chapter 12 and verse 37, and we read the following. Though he had done many what? signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, again, if you've been through or with us in John's gospel for a while, and you know that key verse, John 20, 30 and 31, where you know, the whole idea there is he's presenting this evidence that leads to belief, and then that belief ultimately brings life. And you're saying, but so all this is evidence, and all this, is, this evidence is there, and you can see the evidence and not believe? What's the answer? Yes. Well, doesn't that seem to contradict what John is saying? No, because um, he's also talking about other things that are necessary here. So, so as, we, as we go on in this passage, we must, we must take time to think about what does it mean to look at the cross? What does it mean to look at the signs? How can we see what is going on in our particular text today that will help us see what God wants us to do as far as growing in our instruction and our awareness of who Christ is and what he's done on the cross? And I in order to do that, I want us to think about, just imagine in your mind's eye, uh, Golgotha, the cross, which in itself is what every sign is pointing to, but as you're maybe looking down from where the cross is and looking across the, the, the hillside there, I want us to see three signs, so to speak. Three signs that will help us understand what God is trying to teach us through the events that are revealed in the passages that we read here. They're not signs in the same sense that we've, we've looked at the signs in John's Gospel, but they're signs that are staked in the ground. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we had our elections, right? And did you notice that this year there was hardly any signs out? 
but usually they're like all over the place, right? So there's signs now that are on the hillside, so to speak, that are telling us something about what is taking place on this cross and how we respond to that and how we can either regrow or we can reject it and the results that come from that. And so there are three signs that we're going to look at today, the sign of unbelief, the sign of promise, and the sign of judgment. And these are signs that we should pay attention to. All right. First of all, the sign of unbelief. Let's just pause for a moment here and ask for God's help. Lord, ultimately we, we want to see you. We want to see you high and lifted up. We want to see you in all your glory. And Lord, we realize that the signs that you have recorded in your word, in particular in John's gospel, that have given us an awareness and a picture of who you are, Lord, they are miraculous, they are incredible, they are wonders to be seen, but Lord, they are simply vehicles to point to you. And so Lord, help us as we now continue on in this passage to ask ourselves the question, Lord, what is it that you want us to learn? What sign do you want us to pay attention to as we are pursuing down the path of growing to be like your son, Jesus Christ? And maybe, Lord, that, that, that path that, that someone is going down is a path because they have not yet embraced what has taken place on the cross. And Lord, these signs are, are screaming at them as they are on this journey to consider you and consider what you have to say. So Lord, help us to be humble. Allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be crisp and clear. And Lord, that what I say would be, uh, Lord, what you desire for your people and those who are gathered here this morning to hear. Lord, may it reflect your truth, we ask in your name. Amen. The sign of unbelief. What was the reason for these Jews and their unbelief? How could they observe so many signs, be taught by Jesus in so many ways, and have so much evidence paraded before them and still not believe? I mean, it's just amazing. Go back and read that verse again. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Let it settle in. The answer to these questions should help us understand how we evangelize and how we trust God to work in the lives of others. Notice, first of all, we're told they did not believe. We just read verse 37, but let's read through verse 38. Though he had done, many, uh, done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed uh, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So, simple answer, why did they not believe? Answer, according to this passage, is to fulfill Scripture, right? There's something going on here that their actions and their attitude is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. Lord, and who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. This is a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Turn your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, and then I want you to go back a couple of verses to Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. And we're going to begin reading there. And as we do that, I want us to understand something. That to understand verse 1 of chapter 53, we must understand the greater context of what's going on. And certainly we recognize Isaiah 53 is that passage that just just pours out, um, you might want to say, information, facts about this Messiah who's going to come and the suffering and the struggle he's going to experience. And oftentimes that's all we focus on, but there's more to the story than that, that, that God wants us to see. Secondly, I want you to notice as we read here the similar imagery that is used in Isaiah 53 that John also uses and even Jesus uses as he talks to the Jews, beginning at verse 13. Behold... My servant shall act wisely. Talking there about Jesus, all right? He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Does that sound familiar? As many were you 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of uh, children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. The idea, idea is that their eyes are open, they're able to see, they're able to understand. And then Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What we have here then is, number one, evidence. Evidence, and, but we have to understand this, evidence does not produce Belief. Evidence does not produce belief. Who has believed what he has heard from us? All the stuff that Isaiah is saying, here's what's being taught, here's what's being proclaimed. But evidence is insufficient for belief. Jesus' words and activities are reported by John and other eyewitnesses, the evidence, but very few people are paying attention. Just, just piling on the evidence, friends, will not bring salvation. Simply apologetics by themselves arguing for the things of Christ, you might say, has a place, but by itself, it will not produce salvation. There's no need for apologetics, but by itself, it will not produce salvation. The second thing here in verse, uh, verse 1 is, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The idea there is this. Miraculous signs, the arm of the Lord, the power of God on display that has been revealed will not produce belief. Miraculous signs will not produce belief. Jesus' miraculous signs, which are the arm of the Lord, on display caused very few people to believe. A preoccupation with signs and wonders will not produce salvation. In fact, it may keep someone from believing the gospel. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. Now what's going on in this passage? One of the things we have to understand here is that in Isaiah 53, we have the incredible picture of Jesus, the Messiah, as the suffering servant of Israel, but the suffering servant who is rejected. See, when we read Isaiah 53, we say, ah, here's a picture of Christ, here's a picture of Christ, here's a picture of Christ. Yes, that is the main theme there, but underneath that theme is the fact that here he is, here he is, here he is, but he's being rejected. This is the reality. This is the Messiah. But he is being rejected. And as we come back now to John's gospel, here's the sign of who Jesus is. Here's the sign of who Jesus is. Here's the sign again of who Jesus is. But he is rejected. And that's why he's bringing up this passage of Scripture. You can have all the evidence you want. You can have miraculous signs. But that doesn't guarantee belief. It's not just that they did not believe, but also, secondly, that they could not believe. They did not believe. That's a statement of fact. But now we're getting a little bit more to the core of the issue. They could not believe. Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 10 is what is quoted, but it's right here in verse 39 and 40. Therefore, they could not believe. <laughs> For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You're like, wait a second. I thought, you know, for God so loved the world, right? How could the God that says, I love the world, and I sent my son Jesus Christ to die for the world, do this? Blind their eyes, harden their heart, you know, stop them from understanding. Stop them from turning to me. How could he do that? That seems inconsistent. That's not inconsistent at all. And that's why John quotes Isaiah chapter, 10, uh, chapter 6 and verse 10. Remember, we read this at the beginning of our time together. Chapter 6 of Isaiah has been the result of great crisis in the land of Israel there. And here's Isaiah coming before the Lord. He's given this, this picture. All right? the, 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 the nation is in turmoil. There's... there's uh, um, instability on the earth but of course we re remember that there's always stability in heaven even when there's instability on the earth and and isaiah needed that reminder he needed to be assured of of the fact that he was cleansed before god that he was holy not by virtue of anything he did but because of everything that god had done and then in verse 8 
we read the following. Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to turn there, please. Isaiah 6. And we'll read verse 8. And this is what, uh, this is built up to what uh, is quoted in John chapter 12 here. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now you think, you know, all these hands are popping up. Is that what's going on there? No, there's just Isaiah and the Godhead speaking. Then I said, Isaiah said, I said, here I am, send me. Great missionary passage, right? Great passage about missions, about I'm willing to go, God, wherever you want me to go. And he said, all right, go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and with their hearts and turn and be healed. So this whole vision and God's call for Isaiah is simply for him to take on the responsibility of going and preaching to a people, get this, who will not believe because they cannot believe. Now we would say, what's the point of that? Except this is what God is calling him to. Not only that, when he preaches, when he communicates God's word, their hearts will become harder and harder. This is what is called judicial hardening. And it's foundation for our understanding of how God works. Jesus talks about this on a number of occasions. In Mark chapter 4, talking about the kingdom parables and, and the ability to understand or not understand, Mark chapter 4 verse, uh, verse 11 and following says this, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside... Everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Which is another way of quoting this Isaiah 6 passage. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul appealing to this judicial hardening as the reason why some believers, some believe and others don't. Acts chapter 28, verse 23, and follow it. I'll read. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul, um, after Paul had made one statement. And here's the statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is a judicial healing. This is a consequence of unbelief, and that is a further darkening and hardening of a heart. I mean, why is it you can lay it all out there for someone to see, and they're just like, no, I don't get it. Because they're blind, right? That's the image that we get as we study through some of the passages in John. There's a blindness there. There's a deafness. There's an inability to actually see. And this judicial hardening is also the foundation to Paul's argument and understanding of Israel's unbelief, which is located in Romans chapter 11, verses 7 and following. You can look at that yourself. I'm just trying to stress here that this judicial hardening is part of the package of God's revelation that helps us understand why is it that some believe and some don't believe. Because God in his judicial hardening has created a scenario where they cannot believe. Divine sovereignty that's pretty harsh isn't it I mean, that's it's pretty rough now why is isaiah reporting these things look at verse 41 now back in john chapter 12 why is isaiah reporting these things isaiah said these things verse 41 because he saw his glory and spoke of him and friends this is one of those times when scripture interprets scripture because what's being referred to as him, as Jesus, 
And so when Isaiah is talking about Isaiah chapter 6, and when he's talking about seeing his glory, John is now giving us a, an interpretation of that, that the person that he actually sees seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and his robe is filling the temple, is in fact Jesus Christ. Okay? So he's, he's saying all these things because it is Jesus who is the one who is hardening the hearts of those who were in rebellion to him and to the Father. So friends, there's a sobering picture here that clarifies the fuzzy and foggy view about Jesus that is so prevalent in our American Christianity. Those who consistently harden their hearts against God may find themselves hardened by him. Say it again. Those who consistently harden their hearts against God may find themselves hardened by him. This is the essence of judicial hardening. They deserve it because of their continued unbelief. Jesus is the author of it, being consistent with his holy character. There is a divine reason for their unbelief, a judicial hardening, prophesied and fulfilled in the Jews present with Jesus, but hear this, there's also a human reason for their unbelief. And we see that now in this passage distinguished by this word nevertheless. So we're trying to get this flow of argument that John is giving us now. There is this, all right, they, they just, they did not believe. That's the first thing he says. Then he says they could not believe. We gotta recognize it, that's what he says. And that's what he's proving as he's going through those passages in Isaiah. But now we have this nevertheless. It isn't just that they did not believe. It isn't just that they could not believe. It's also that they would not believe. In other words, they chose to not believe. It was something in and of themselves that they were making a personal, volitional choice, decision, if you will, to not believe. It's what they wanted to do was to not believe. So, verse 42, Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him. You say, wait a second, you just said that they chose not to believe. Well, this is an argument about unbelief. The kind of belief that John records here is the kind of superficial belief that has shown us, or he's shown us in many other passages. Go back to chapter 2, again, verse 23 through 24. And this, these, are, these are anchoring places that we go to, John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, where John reminds us, now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus knew that the sign was simply what they were looking at, that they were in awe of the sign. They weren't necessarily believing that he was the Messiah. This is great miracle worker coming into town. Look at what he can do. Wow, this is great, this is great. And there's a buzz around the community. But they weren't coming believing in Christ as the Messiah. They were believing in Jesus as a miracle worker. And Jesus could see right through that. And he was not going to entrust himself to them. That's what's going on there. So the superficial belief is exposed for what, really, what it really is. It's bad fruit. Now, back to John chapter 12. We read there, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So, three things we find now in these few verses as to reasons why they didn't believe. Fear of the Pharisees. Fear of being put out of the synagogue. Loving the glory or the praise of man rather than the glory or praise that comes from God. So here we have the answer to the question, what is the reason for the Jews' unbelief? It was that they could not believe divine sovereignty through judicial hardening, but it was also that they would not believe and that would not belief was the result of, ultimately, you might want to say, the fear of man and the desire to please man rather than to please God. Now, here's divine sovereignty working in conjunction with human responsibility. Man loves the glory of man, and he is 
consumed with the fear of man, even when the evidence is right before him and he will not believe. Now, friends, there's, there's a point here now of application for us. And the point of application for us is this. Do we struggle to believe God and his word? And if so, we are given here some insight as to why that might be the case. We fear what man will say. We fear what man will do. We fear what man will say to us or about us. How many of you enjoy it when you know that people are talking badly about you? Anyone have that experience before? Maybe you're at work and you're doing something and you're doing something well and you're walking away and those other co-workers are like, man, why do they think they are? You know, trying to do goody two-shoes, right? And you're just like, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to honor you, Lord, and yet there's this, there's this stuff that you have to deal with in your heart. We fear what man will do to us. This is a little bit more, more intense. It's not just what they'll say, but now what they will do physically to us. And in this passage, they were concerned about the Pharisees, what they would say, but they were also concerned about being put out of the synagogue, which was a very, very significant thing. I mean, a huge cultural lifestyle change. But ultimately, what's going on here is that they were loving the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So another way to say this is we would rather be praised by men than by God. We would rather be applauded by the people in our lives than applauded by the God of the universe. Let's be honest. That's, we struggle with that. But it is a reason for unbelief. It is a reason for unbelief in the gospel and applying that gospel to ourselves. And I think we can step back and say that even as God's children, it is a problem of unbelief as we are growing toward being like Christ. We still struggle with what people will say. We still struggle with what people will do to us. And oftentimes we really want the praise of men rather than the accolades that will only come from a sovereign God. Now friends, that will affect whom we will call friend. That will affect whom and what we will vote for in an election. That will affect how we pursue strengthening our marriages or raising our children or what goals we will strive for. Because in essence, to love the praise of man rather than the praise of God means that we shut God out and won't listen to what he has to say because it isn't what we desire or it isn't what he desires that matters to us but what man says. So, we will trust Oprah rather than the scripture. We will put our faith in Dr. Phil rather than the instructions of Jesus. We will keep our eyes on the the state of the the stock market or a bank account rather than on the never-ending supply from the sovereign God that we are saying that we're worshiping. We live our lives according to the cultural norms of the day rather than the guidance of God's truth. We will measure success by how much, how big, how powerful, and how many people showed up at our funeral. We would rather succeed in the praise of, of man than succeed in the praise of the Father. And friend, that attitude is marked by one thing, unbelief. Now friends, there's a sign screaming at us, beware of unbelief. There's another sign though. And that is the sign of promise. Shift gears a little bit here. Because now Jesus is speaking. I might want to say that the rest of this passage is kind of a, a summary um, given by John recounting Jesus preaching that summarizes core themes that are part of, of John's or Jesus' teaching that he has recorded. And we'll see that. But here we have, first of all, that these promises, these truths these, these that just resound over and over and over again, verse 44 now through 46. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so Jesus promises those who believe in him will be blessed in two ways. First of all, there'll be a growing intimacy with him and the Father. You believe me, you're also believing in him. There's this, there's this reality that, that if you're trusting me, if you're receiving me, you're also receiving God. 
And there's this growth now that comes as a result of that particular relationship, that, that there's this growing intimacy that we can have now. And behind everything that Jesus did is the Father, and he does everything with the authority of the Father. But there's a second thing, and that is this. We have this, this blessing of being able to walk in the light. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And we know from other portions of Scripture in John's Gospel here, he's talking about you, you're not in darkness, you're walking in the light. That's the result of what is going on. Now we can, again, because we're familiar with this picture, and you remember the, the light that's been talked about is the light that's in the temple. It was huge, these huge, big kind of bonfire lights that shone up the, 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 the skies of Jerusalem during the, the festival there that came out of the temple. And, and that's what Jesus is referring to. I am the the world, and, and he's just picturing this light shining and giving light to everything. But we must remember, as, we, as we, we think about the significance of what it means to be in the darkness, that we honestly take a look at that. It means that we are blind, totally blind and unable to see. It means that we are deaf, totally deaf without an ability to hear. It means that we are enemies, totally opposed to God and opposed to his purposes. We are lost, totally without direction. We are hopeless, totally without any hope for life in the future. These are descriptions that are used to describe those who do not know God, do not have this personal, intimate relationship with Him. Now that may be true, but when genuine belief takes place, when you are drawn by Jesus as the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, when you have life breathed into your soul by the Holy Spirit, when you recognize the only a person that is your hope is Jesus Christ, you can now see, you can hear, you're no longer lost, you're no longer hopeless, you're no longer an enemy but a friend, you are a son of light, you're a child of God, you're in the light. It's not just, well great, I can see now, I think I'm just going to roll over now and close my eyes. If you've never been able to see, what do you want to do? You and I, if we are genuine believers, have an ongoing intimate connection with God through his word, by his Holy Spirit, and because of Christ. And this is the promise that we have because of what Jesus has done in being lifted up on the cross. When you see a sign, you expect that sign to actually deliver. You expect to follow that sign, and when you get to the end, realize the benefit that that sign helped you there. You know, this summer we went to Bolivia, a number of us from the church, and um, when we arrived in Miami, we knew that we were late, and we knew that we were going to miss our flight. But we were told by the person who was there, you know, when you get off, go to the re-ticketing counter. So we get off, it's late at night, we want to figure out what's going on, we were hoping we could get on the flight, and we tried to find these signs to the reticketing counter, but we couldn't find them anywhere. I mean, we literally walked around Miami International Airport for probably a good hour before we actually found something. We asked people, I don't know, I think it's over there. And I mean, there's hardly anyone around. And I could tell you all the nooks and crannies of that, that airport now, okay? I mean, that's how well we know it. We counted the tile. We know all the pictures that are there, okay? And it was all because we couldn't see the signs. We finally got to the ticketing counter. Guess what? It was closed. And there are two of them. And the one that we should have gone to was actually not too far from when we got off our plane. It was just to the side. But the sign was not pronounced, and you couldn't see it. If you didn't know where it was, you wouldn't know it was there. And so, boom, we barreled on. And as we look back on this whole story, this is me griping now, okay, is, <laughs> is the fact that, you know, if we had gotten off the plane and gone straight to it's possible we would have made our flight. All because their signs were not crisp and clear. Now friends, you expect when you follow a sign that it will take you to where you want to go. When Jesus speaks, hear this, when Jesus presents himself in his word, you can be sure that what he is presenting is true and it will fulfill what it sets out to fulfill. So when it talks about Jesus being the bread of life, guess what? He is. When he changes water into wine, guess what? He did that, and that's a demonstration of his power. 
When he fed the multitude, it is a picture of the fact that he continually and consistently satisfies and brings that satisfaction to we who are listening to him and are willing to follow him. So there's the sign of unbelief. There's a sign of promise. But friends, there is also another sign, and that is the sign of judgment. And this sign of judgment is certain. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And it's like you could read that and say, isn't that great? I mean, you could pull that verse out and say, isn't it great? Jesus doesn't judge. He's a loving, wonderful God. And just distort the character of the Godhead completely. But he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Jesus didn't come to judge the world. True. He didn't come to condemn the world because the world, what? Was already condemned. It's already headed down the road to judgment. So Jesus didn't come in the world and say, you know, hey, you're going to be judged. They were already on the road to being judged. He came in the world to be the solution, to be the savior, to be the answer, to be the sacrifice. So Jesus is coming as the Messiah to provide a solution. But if you do not receive his instructions, if you do not keep his word. If you reject what he has to say, then you will continue down the road to destruction. And it says here, you will ultimately be judged. This is a future judgment. You will be judged on the last day. What will be the measure of your judgment on the last day? Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you. So right now, in this particular time, when Jesus is speaking to these group of people, guess what? He has not come as a judge, but one day he will. And the same words that he's speaking then will be the same words that will be used to judge mankind. And in that, though, in that statement, there is this hope. Why? Because the purpose of the sign is to be a warning. You're driving down the street, and it says a sign, you know, stop, cliff ahead. You don't say, oh, it's a nice sign. I like that. The colors are great shape. They, that really caught my attention, you know, keep on barreling through. No, it's going to catch your attention and it's going to cause you to think, what am I doing? Slow down. Stop. So when Jesus speaks like this, this is not a saying, oh, you know, you're not going to be judged just because I love you as you are. No, it's saying, I have come to be the solution, but judgment is coming. Judgment is certain it is future it is going to happen we will all stand before the lord and give an account of what we have said and what we have done every man every woman will have to do that it's a reality it's also we see here not only the certainty of judgment but also the authority of judgment for i have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So the Father is the authority behind the judgment. When Jesus speaks, he is speaking the, the words of the Father, and Jesus has taught um, what the Father backs up. So everything Jesus says, everything that Jesus um, is doing is backed up by the authority of the Father. Therefore, to reject Jesus and his words is to reject who? The Father. So when you stand before God on the last day and he asks you, what do you have to come into my heaven, what will you say? Will you say, I have done many good and noble things. And God will say to you, maybe so, but they're not good enough. My standard is holiness, perfection, and you have fallen short. Or you could say, I do not come on my own merit, but I come on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for me, who paid the price for my sin, who bore the punishment that I deserved, and through believing in him, I have received new life. It's not what I've done. It's everything that he did. And the Father is also the authority behind the commandment 
is the authority behind the judgment, but he's also the authority behind the commandment. Notice verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What is the commandment that Jesus is talking about here? It is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's, that's the message in a nutshell. Jesus is saying, here's the evidence, here are the signs, here's what's pointing to the fact that I am the Messiah, that I am the one lifted up. And you are to believe on me and be saved. When the apostle Paul preached in Athens, he said, God commands all men everywhere to repent. It is a command. It's a command to look. It's a command to, to see Jesus. It's a command to face the gospel and believe. Therefore, to say no to the gospel is saying no to the commandment. And it's to place you further down the road toward judgment. My friends, Jesus came to this world to save sinners. He came to this world to take us off of that path, to remove us from that path toward judgment. And he gives us these signs to warn us, to caution us, to comfort us, to give us wisdom and direction. But let's just go through them one more time with a little bit more application orient here and think through some things that I believe flow out of this, just some, some practical things that are my concluding thoughts here. Concluding thought number one, it's long, but I hope you get the picture here. Be careful not to be drawn away from Christ by the apparent miracles and sensationalism of mystical spirituality under the guise of Christianity. <gasps> Take a breath. Be careful not to be drawn away from Christ by the apparent miracles and sensationalism of a mystical spirituality under the guise of Christianity. Now friends, one example of that is the many different forms of Mary worship. Go on the internet and type up, you know, Mary sightings. And, and you will find, you know, things like, you know, there was a statue in some church where Mary is weeping and people are now flocking to that place because somehow God is revealing himself through this icon. And then there's, there's really foolish things. Not that that isn't foolish, but there are even more foolish things like, you know, someone is, is, is grilling a, a piece of French toast and they flip it over and there, there's an appearance of Mary and the baby and like, wow, you know, God is revealing himself through French toast. I'm not joking. This is the kind of mystical spirituality that often comes under the guise of Christianity can draw us away from Christ and say, oh, God must be revealed here in this French toast. And that's not the French toast that is, that is the focus here of people that are consumed with that. They think that somehow God is revealing himself through that French toast. How many of you have ever just laid down on a day like today and you look up in the sky and you see clouds and they form different shapes and you're like, Oh, wow, look, that one looks like, and you fill in the blank, and that one looks like, and you ever done that before? I, I, think, I think, you know, there, there's, a, there's also, <laughs> I remember when I was a little boy, I don't want to get into too much details here, but when I was a little boy, in our home, in the bathroom, we had Formica-type tiling, and I remember sitting there, you don't have to imagine this, but sitting there in the bathroom, looking at the tiles, <laughs> and there were these like repeated tile things and, and the patterns actually formed in my mind the picture of this kind of evil man with a big chin. And the more I sit there, it's like, ah, oh, this man has a chin and uh, Satan's in the tile and all that kind of, you know what I'm talking about because we probably all experienced something like that. You can look at the curtains, you can look at things and shapes form and we can make so much more of what it is simply because we think, aha, this must be a spiritual encounter. Now friends, please hear this. Jesus did many signs, but the signs were not the focus of attention. He is the focus of attention. 
So when you go into a church that is consumed with miracles and signs and wonders and all these different things, and their focus and attention is on wow and pow, and where is Christ in all that? When God is calling us to say, listen, the, the signs, yes, there are wonderful things that happen in this world. There are incredible stories of God's providence and sovereignty, but ultimately, the glory goes to Christ. Not the glory goes to the signs, but the glory goes to Him. I see Him for who He is. And so, friends, be careful that this propensity, that mystical uh, sensationalism has and, and finding its way under the, 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 the tapestry of, of American Christianity and, and brings us to a place where it seems like we replace Christ with these things. Be careful. You and I have the Word of God. You and I have the Holy Spirit residing in us to give us wisdom concerning the Word of God and who Christ is. We don't need to be running off the latest kind of mystical thing to somehow have an encounter with Jesus. You have everything, every piece of equipment necessary to have this intimate, personal, growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So be careful. Be very, very careful. Secondly, we must pursue what it means to be walking in the light. Now, before, you can... You can, you know, one day wake up and realize, ah, I was blind, but now I see. And then just kind of close your eyes and say, well, I've got sight. Friends, just think about it. If that were true, if you were blind, but now you can see. If you're blind from birth, you've never seen before, but now you can see. What do you think you would be doing with your day? You probably would not be sleeping it off, although that's necessary to sleep. You probably would be input, 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 input. I can see, I can see, I can see. That's red, that's yellow, that's blue. That shape is incredible. And, you know, there's all these different things that you now would see. And friends, that is what our Christian walk is like. We were blind. But now, because of Christ, because of the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, we see. And friends, there is so much to see. Don't stand around the sign that Go on in. Look at El Capitan. Climb it if you want. Go to Bridal Veil Falls. Go to the, you know, down to the, the, the village and experience all the mosquitoes. You know? There's so much in your Christian life to see. So thank God that you can see. Thank God that you can hear. Thank God that you are a friend. Thank God that you are no longer an enemy. Thank God that you are family and experience what all those things mean. Because that's the promise that he has given you. And finally, we must be taking seriously the judgment. This is often one of those things we say, oh yeah, the judgment's coming. Yeah, judgment. It's not real judgment. No, it's a real judgment. It's a real event. You will not be absent. You will have to give an account. And the sign is here for your benefit, for your attention. My friends, this really brings us to the end of, of a huge section in John's Gospel, a section called the Book of Signs. But we must remember that all of those are pointing to the true landmark, which is Christ. But it's not just Christ independent of things. It's Christ who is the Messiah, who is the Lamb slain for the sin of mankind, who is the one exalted, high and lifted up, whose glory is on display for everyone to see. Just like the, the, the Greeks said, we would see Jesus we have the great privilege of having seen him, but now continuing an intimate growth in understanding who he is. Lord, help us today to grasp, Lord, what it means to be a child of yours. Lord, to be careful that we would not fall into a pattern or a habit or a thinking of unbelief. Lord, that we would not be allowing ourselves to be eclipsed by the sensational when, Lord, we have you as our Savior. Lord, help us 
live in light of your coming, Lord. Not to fear it because we who are your children have nothing to fear because you stand in our place and you say they're not condemned because I satisfied everything that they did that was sinful against you, Father, on the cross. And if we're God's children, we are so blessed because of what you have done. But Lord, help us now to live in light of these truths and to pursue our walk with you with greater fervor and desire, Lord, to, to please you truly in a genuine way. And Lord, help us to be mindful of the ways in which we can fall off the ditch on either side. Lord, you are a great God. You care about us. You love us. You warn us. You want the best for us. Lord, help us to listen to you, to heed those signs and those warnings and those counsels, and to come running to you because you always, always, always accept your children. In particular, when we have repented, when we've confessed, when we want restoration, Lord, help us not fear you, but Lord, run to you even when we have failed you, Lord. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.